For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kai, and DR, as usual, talking about the news that you didn't hear from the past week. And then I sit down with Kobe Kennedy to talk about his installation piece, Khalif Browder, The Box, on display in Brooklyn's Pioneer Works Garden. I love the art. Love it, love it, love it. My advice for this week is to love on people. So this episode is dedicated to my dear friend, Jason Jerome Hawkins. He passed away at 33. He was diagnosed with lung cancer in April and passed away in July. Jason, I want you to know that I love you. Uh, I'm so thankful that we were friends. And my advice for this week is to remember to love on people, that you loved on people in such a big way. I'm happy that we got to play uh, the Oculus VR uh, in October of 2020 at your house in New Jersey. And I want you to know I love you. Let's go. So my story is about uh, a Baltimore City police officer who killed an unarmed black teenager in 1993. This officer was Edward Gorwell II of the Baltimore City Police Department. He killed 14-year-old Simmet Thomas, who was allegedly fleeing from a stolen car in West Baltimore. And uh, this officer shot him in the back in 1993. Within weeks of Gorwell killing Thomas, he said that he heard a gunshot before he opened fire. But no gun other than his own was ever found at all. At the first trial in 1993, it was a mistrial. One of the jurors just failed to show up. The second trial was scheduled in 1999, and it was dropped after a police employee, a lab tech, using a forensic test that was unavailable, reportedly found traces of gunshot residue magically, suddenly, in the teenager's left hand. Now, you know, do I believe that? Absolutely not. But okay. In January of 2002, he reached an agreement with the Baltimore Police Department that permanently revoked his police powers but kept him on the payroll. So he couldn't make arrests. He essentially couldn't do anything that he couldn't carry a gun, but he stayed on the Baltimore City Police Department's payroll. And since then, he's been a call taker in the Police Communications Division, and he's been helping out with 311 calls. But here's the catch. The Office of Inspector General with the Baltimore City Police Department got a complaint about alleged overtime abuse, wrote a whole report about it, and this officer was finally fired uh, three months after the report. Now, the wild thing is that he should not have been given full employment rights and union protection after he was permanently stripped of his police powers forever ago, but he was. He got regular salary increases and substantial overtime through 2020. Between 2016 and 2020, he received $158,000 in overtime pay on top of his regular salary, which pushed his total pay over five years to nearly $600,000. Now, his duties would have been performed by a civilian employee with an annual salary of about $44,000, but they kept him on the roll. And this is just another example that even when there could be accountability, you can't let the police manage it themselves. They took his gun. He could not make a right. He really couldn't do anything. But the police protect their own. And he was just allowed to hang out in the police department. The police department in Baltimore is like 3,000 employees smooth, maybe. 
I was the chief human capital in the Baltimore City Public School System. I had 10,000 employees, and we regularly did audits of every workspace, everybody, to make sure that people were coming to work, to make sure they were real employees, to make sure we weren't paying people we shouldn't pay. And if we could do it with 10,000 employees, you can definitely do it with 3,000 in a police department. But I bring this here because this stuff is happening all across the country. It's definitely happening all across the city. And I'll tell you that as a result of that, the city passed a new policy. Why is this a new policy? This should have been in place. That the Baltimore City Police can no longer earn overtime pay while they're on vacation. Now, if you're on vacation, how do you earn overtime pay from that job? How? Make it make sense. Thankfully, the inspector general's office in Baltimore, and they are giving the inspector general a hard time. They do not like her in city government, but it's because she is up here uncovering this sort of stuff. And a Baltimore Sun investigation showed that officers use this policy to rack up tens of thousands of dollars in paid overtime with five officers each logging more than 2,000 hours of overtime in a single year. Because you just go on vacation and then you do it anyway. You just work. So you're double dipping. And it's like a brilliant way for you to get a paid vacation and to make money at the same time. Mind you, nobody else in the city can do this. You definitely can't do this in your job. And the city, the police department's excuse was like the payroll system they use was complicated. And it's like, come on, that's not it. But I say this because the devil's in the details. We can't allow the police to continue to waste our money and double dip, do these things, and we can't let the police manage themselves. My news this week is about the federal SNAP program, the federal food stamp program. In big news, the Biden administration has improved the largest single increase in the history of the federal food stamp program. All 42 million SNAP participants, which is actually one in eight Americans, will see an increase of more than 25% over pre-pandemic levels of SNAP benefits. In fact, the average monthly benefit will go from $121 to $157 per person starting in October. This is huge. Um, this is actually the first time that the SNAP benefit has been adjusted since the beginning of the program. And this is part of the Biden administration's effort to strengthen the country's social safety net, not just to address what's going on in a pandemic, but in an attempt to make generational changes that will last far beyond. Many people have criticized the SNAP program for not providing enough money to supply an adequate diet. In fact, they say it forces uh, families to go for sugary foods and high sodium foods and processed foods that are cheap. And in fact, more than 75% of households on SNAP run out of money in the first half of the month. So this increase is actually huge. It's expected to reduce hunger. It's expected to improve nutrition and it's expected to lead to better health outcomes for our neediest families. Kudos to the Biden administration for taking this on and trying to deal with some of the issues of food insecurity in our country. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals 
are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P slash people. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, it's Sam. And for my news this week, I want to talk about universal basic income, or UBI. Now, this approach has gained steam over the past few years, as we've seen more and more cities begin to adopt universal basic income programs. And even we've seen some action taken at the state level and in Congress that embodies that spirit. So let's rewind all the way back to 2019, Stockton, California, the pilot program that really sparked so much of this conversation that was implemented by Mayor Mike Tubbs. That program provided 125 residents with $500 checks a month over a two-year period. The initial findings from the study of that program found that contrary to Republican talking points, Getting that money not only improved the lives of those families and led to overall higher levels of stability and reported well-being, 
but also it didn't disincentivize them from obtaining employment, contrary to those Republican talking points. The folks who actually received the checks were more likely to get employment than the control group was in Stockton. So that was Stockton. Since then, city after city have begun to implement universal basic income pilots within the broader banner of Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, a network of over 40 cities implementing these programs that was founded by Mayor Mike Tubbs. Now, what's interesting is, as cities are implementing these programs at the local level, we've also seen some uptake at the state level. So in the past month, California has passed legislation to create a statewide universal basic income program that initially focuses on two populations, foster care youth who are aging out of the foster care system and pregnant women. What's also interesting is that in New Mexico, following California's lead, they're currently right now in New Mexico debating legislation that would also create a universal basic income program at that state. That program would be modeled after a program that's already being implemented in Santa Fe, where individuals in poverty receive $400 checks a month. So all of that's to say that we've gone from you know, an initial case study to a network of dozens and dozens of some of the largest cities across the country all implementing universal basic income programs in different ways with different target populations, different levels of investment, uh, different size populations. And now we're even seeing at the state level and even in Congress with the stimulus checks and the expansion of the child tax credit, a similar approach that is already delivering results in terms of drastically cutting the poverty rate according to the latest analysis from the Urban Institute. So if you are wanting to see a program like that in your city, call your mayor, call your state legislator, call your member of Congress, and get them to follow the lead of mayors across the country, state legislators in places like California and New Mexico, and even some members of Congress in providing direct support, direct financial support, cash, to the families who need it most. Because the data shows that not only does it make a huge difference in the lives of families who receive these resources, but nationwide, we actually could use this approach to drastically cut the poverty rate, even to abolish poverty entirely. Now let's get it done. Y'all, I promise to keep you informed about Black women who are being appointed to the federal bench. It's something, of course, that's extremely personal to me. As a Black woman who is a member of the bar, who is a proud graduate of an HBCU law school, Thurgood Marshall School of Law in Houston, Texas. So, you know, obviously, beyond my personal beliefs, it's critical that we have a judiciary that reflects the diversity of this country. Um, and it seems, it appears, here we are, the Biden administration believes that too and are also making good on it. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, remember, we covered an organization called She Will Rise, and it's an organization committed to getting a black woman on the Supreme Court. So it's also important, and, you know, obviously covering this because of it, it is important also that we have black women on the federal bench. Um, and so it's really much about creating this ecosystem where we will have someone who is super strong and has a career on the federal bench to be able to go to the Supreme Court. So here we are. Judge Eunice Lee was confirmed by the Senate last Saturday morning to be on the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. She was confirmed um, in the Senate again by a 50 to 47 vote. Judge Lee is the second black woman to serve on that particular court. She is also the first former 
federal public defender to join that roster of judges, which is also major. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain tweeted about Eunice Lee, and he said that President Joe Biden had advanced more black women to the U.S. Court of Appeals than any other president's entire term with Lee's confirmation. Now, yes, I think that we should acknowledge this progress. Really, I think (laughs) the barometer for past presidents appointing black women to the federal bench or otherwise probably isn't the best barometer for measuring impact. Nonetheless, I very much admire Ron Klain. And if you all don't follow him, you should. I have a great deal of respect for him and his competencies and also just like his thoughtfulness that I've seen up close and sometimes it's rare, obviously, in politics. And so, you know, this, I think, is exciting. From the list of Biden-nominated judges, Lee is the fourth Black woman to be confirmed to the U.S. Court of Appeals and the fifth to a federal judgeship overall. So we are making progress. So I, I hope this continues. Again, you know, I think it's super historic that she was a federal public defender. She's from New York. Um, she's going to bring an incredible perspective to the bench. And so excited to see this and excited to continue to follow along and to keep y'all informed about what appointments are being made. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. In 2010, a 17-year-old boy named Khalif Brado was arrested for a robbery he didn't commit. Khalif was held on Rikers Island without trial for over three years, with torturously long stretches in solitary confinement. The toll of this trauma resulted in Khalif Browder dying by suicide. Artist Kobe Kennedy created a representation of Khalif Browder's solitary confinement cell, which is a work of installation art currently on display in Brooklyn's Pioneer Works Garden. I went to see it, and I wish that everybody could go see this important work so that people could understand the terror of solitary confinement. Here we go with my conversation with Kobe. Kobe, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Hey, great to be here. I am so excited to talk to you because I, I came across your work. I don't even know. It was definitely on Instagram. Like I saw somebody post 
uh, the latest piece that is in Brooklyn. And I was like, oh my God, I got to go see it. I got to go. I got to see it myself. Mm. And then I saw it about Khalif Browder and I was blown away. The only, my only criticism of it is that it's not in all 50 states, not in every city, not in every, I'm like, everybody needs to see this. Yeah. But before we talk about that, can you talk about um, your journey in art? When did you start identifying as an artist? Mm. Uh, how would you describe your art? And then we'll talk about the Khalif Browder piece. It's only recently that I realized that I grew up in a bubble. I grew up in an artist bubble. My, most of my family's artists, my mom was a practicing artist, my dad practicing artist. My dad was the dean of the art department at Howard University. So I grew up in the art department on campus at Howard University. We live right across the street. And that was my first six or seven years. And from then on, it was just art tracked in elementary school, in middle school. I went to Duke Ellington School of the uh, Arts, uh, visual arts, performing arts, everything, dance, the whole thing was there. So I was in visual arts over there. That was high school. And then I got out of high school and went to Pratt, you know, Pratt Institute up in New York for design, art and design. After that, I went straight to Japan for about a decade, Japan and Italy, doing car design. And then I got back to the States. And uh, it was the first time that I was ever around non-artists or at least not artists that weren't like me. So it was a culture shock in 2010. It was the first time I had met actual people, really. So I had always thought that art was just something that you live, breathe, do, eat, sleep. You know, the way you get in the elevator, the way you uh, eat rice, the way you put on a shirt. You know, growing up around my parents and growing up around that kind of community, life, the universe and everything was art. And it was only then, about 10 years ago, that I realized that it's a whole separate thing for other people. You know, when I went into grad school, I was stunned because there were people in there that just did one thing, you know, like they did collage or they did painting. They were a sculptor. And that was the first time I had ever heard of that. You know, everybody that I had ever known in my life was multidisciplinary with their creativity. So the last 10 years has definitely been a culture shock, kind of a reverse culture shock. And me, myself, I describe myself as an artist, and that's kind of where it is because that's how I grew up with uh, not just multidisciplinary in the arts, but multidisciplinary in your perspective on the world and how you see things. One, one morning, my mom took care of all of that, you know, out front of our house when I was six. Um, she told me this story about horses that we can go into later, but basically she dropped the theory of relativity on me in a way that a six-year-old can understand. And from that point on, it just destroyed any semblance of um, common sense that I would ever have. It definitely very much showed me that um, everything's relative and labels are almost meaningless. And so that influenced literally every second of every minute of the rest of my life. So, yeah, I always define myself as an artist or a maker of pretty things. My motto ever since I was a kid was make cool shit. And uh, that's kind of driven me forever. That's kind of the through line to my whole practice, especially after I became a practicing professional artists because, you know, I just made art since I was born. And it wasn't until 2008 that my brother, Double Dog, dared me to be a full-time fine artist. And um, I kind of jumped in with both feet, you know, like dealing with galleries, dealing with collectors, dealing with it as a profession and not just something that you are, live, breathe, eat and do. What made him dare you? Was it like, a, was it like Thanksgiving and he was like, you need to finally do this? Or was it something else? Oh, he just dared me because we were best friends in high school. And then our parents both divorced their spouses. My parents broke up and his parents broke up. And half of our parentage got together. And so they married each other. So then we became... That's like a best friend, like, you know, TV show. Yeah, yeah. It was like a sitcom. And then we became MWBs, might as well be brothers. That 
lasted for about 10 years. And then the two parents that married each other split up, they divorced and remarried and re-got back with, you know, our original parents. So it was wild. It's been wild. That is a TV show. Now that you yeah. need to, that'll be your next art is like turning that yeah. your life into a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you first learn about Khalif's story and, and why did that resonate with you? And can you talk to us about mm-hmm. the piece that I've been fortunate enough to see and that I want everybody to see mm-hmm. and what made you uh, do this? It was many years ago that I first caught wind of Khalif's story. It was right when it became kind of well-known in New York and uh, started becoming known around the country and then spread out. It was right around that time. And the thing that hit me so hard about it is that, you know, what happened to him embodies so much of what my deepest fears have been ever since I was a kid. And then how he fought back against that for a long time, tried to surmount all these things that were being thrown at him, embodied the strength that I hoped at the time that I had, you know, in case something like that happened to me. And realizing that it's something that I didn't have at that time, I wouldn't have had when I was his age. I developed this massive, deep admiration for his fortitude and fighting against and pushing back on all these forces that were trying to break him down, destroy him and break him as a human being. A deep empathy for what he went through and a deep respect for how he dealt with it from his words, from his family's words, from his friend's words, um, how he dealt with it all the way up until uh, the end where it just became too much for him. You know, according to people that were there firsthand and according to his words, you know, he was fighting against all the way up to the end. He was pushing back against all these things that were coming at him. And I know that I couldn't do that. And so it blows me away. It blew me away, his entire story, everything. For a long time, I wanted to you know, incorporate that feeling into my work, that very, very core human struggle for, you know, your own freedom and Khalif's case, as well as the way that I've thought on my life, this struggle for universal truth or human truth. Because one of the big things about Khalif was that at certain points, he wasn't even just fighting for him. He wanted to expose what was happening in Rikers, in jails like that. You know, his experience, he wanted to expose it because it needed to be exposed. It wasn't just a self-mission, you know? It it was just incredible to me, like his selflessness, even hearing his uh, brother talk on the documentary and talking to his brother a few days ago, you know, I was lucky to, just talking about how he was constantly looking out for other people he cared about, looking out for friends, looking out for family, and a lot of times putting friends and family above himself. And for a kid to do that, you know, so many people forget that he was a kid, you know, for a kid to have that much uh, selflessness and self-awareness to the point that knowing who you are and asserting how you're going to be treated as a valued human, you know, at that age, you know, most grown people can't even do that. It was that thing, you know, it was that thing that really resonated with me that made me really want to do something that I could to branch the story out to people that were not picking up on the story or people that dismissed the story or people that dismissed this whole everything, that people that had such a subjective reality that they can't even comprehend that this could happen in the world in, in any way, shape or form. I noticed that a lot of people were like that in talking to folks. You know, they just completely were missing not just the point of what he was pushing for, but they were missing that this could even happen. There were, a lot of people were denying that this could happen. I can't show up at people's houses and scream at them and t- you know show them what's going on with the world. I'm not an activist. You know, I, I don't have those skills. 
You know, I don't, I can't get out there and motivate, you know, hordes of people to politically and socially change, you know, the world we live in. But what I can do is touch on the emotional side of things, the emotional side of issues, the emotional side of events, the emotional sides of states of being, and portray that in a way that can emotionally and ephemerally connect with a viewer, you know, somebody that sees my art, sees my work. And if I can inject certain realities into my work and open people to alternative perspectives that they hadn't considered before, then that's great. And that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I try to do with my work. And that's what I'm really trying to do with this piece, the box, the sculpture, the public sculpture. Can you tell us about the box? Like why mm-hmm. was, was the box the first, like, did you have like three options and you were like, okay, there are like a couple things I might mm. do. And then the box was like, you were like, okay, this is definitely the thing. But can you explain to people who have not been able to see it? Like, what is the box? Mm-hmm. Why did you build it the way you built it? Yeah. Why Brooklyn? I had a few um, designs because what happened at first, I was approached by, an activism agency, art and activism agency, about three years ago to um, do a Khalif Browder sculpture. And it's something I'd wanted to do for so long. It felt like a perfect uh, fit and a perfect opportunity to make it happen. A few of the original designs, a couple of them were kind of classical, honorary sculpture ideations, kind of that kind of aesthetic. I had one where it was shaped in the form of an eight-foot, ten-foot tall flower the blooms on it were different figures that were coming out and there were different points in Khalif's life, you know, celebrating these different points in Khalif's life. And I think I had another one that was um, kind of a little more abstract. It really started hitting me that it was almost like I was making a design for a sculpture that was created and made by somebody else. It wasn't my thing and it didn't speak to the strong, raw emotions that Khalif's story gave to me. And it didn't speak to the impetus of what really reached out and grabbed me in the chest by Khalif. And that wasn't my connection to Khalif and his story. My connection was the fear and unbelievability of the amount and weight of hardship that was thrown down on him and the weight that he had to carry and the environment that he had to carry it in. And on the flip side of that, the perseverance and fortitude that he showed and the strength that it took for him to fight for five years against things that would break most of us in less than five months. That was the real core of my connection with Khalif and his story. And that was the idea, emotion, that was the visceral thing that I wanted to get across to a viewer that wouldn't otherwise understand that angle of the story. And it's part of the story that I see looked over so much. Even talking now with people online that might dial into my IG or make a comment on a post, you know, so many of them know the story as there was this guy, he got arrested, he was in solitary confinement for a long time on Rikers, and then he killed himself. And they don't understand the things that happened in between, and they don't understand the self-assertion that Khalif was constantly making. The real core of the story uh, they just have no idea about, you know, all they know are headlines that they might have seen on New York One or, you know, the New York Post or something like that. And in, in terms of like the Western canon, you know, Khalif to me is like a saint, like all these people that were uh, adorned sainthood. You know, I look back on a lot of those people in Western society and a lot of them suffered less and fought back less than Khalif actually did. And for less noble reasons, like Khalif's reasons were incredibly noble. 
And it's, it just blows me away. So that's what I wanted to get across with the sculpture itself. I wanted to show the hardship that was put on him. And I wanted to highlight within that hardship how he was able to fight against it and for a moment in time rise above it. And that's why I wanted to recreate the solitary confinement cell that, um, you know, take one of the smallest solitary confinement cells that you'll have on Rikers, which would be a six by eight, and uh, recreate that and have the viewer viscerally start to try and comprehend what it would be like to be in that box for not just 700, 300, 100 days, but how it would feel to be in there for 100 minutes, 100 seconds. Um, you know, you come upon this uh, transparent plexiglass and steel box on the street, this piece of public art, and you're looking into it and, you know, the human reflex can't help but personalize it, visualize himself inside this space, even before they know what it is. I know that people won't take time to read a whole didactic write down of what a piece is about if it's posted next to it. So I wanted to put it on the piece itself in a way that doesn't interrupt the piece but in a way that the viewer can't miss it. And so I sandblasted the story of what happened to Khalif, how he was kidnapped uh, and tortured. And I sandblasted that on the clear plexiglass of the box itself so that it almost floats there like a cloud and you can't miss it and you're almost forced to read it. And then on the other side is the um, technical information of what the United Nations considers to be torture. You know, any time in solitary over 15 days. And then the fact that Khalif his first extended stay was, you know, over 300 days. And then the most important part of the piece is Khalif's quote, which is in the boldest type, the biggest font. He said this in an interview where they were talking about, they're trying to give him those plea deals where he would admit his guilt and he would get out, you know, that day. And each time they threw that at him, he would knock it down. And his quote was, the way I see it, if I got to stay here just to prove my innocence, then so be it. That quote alone just, you know, even still it floors me because here's this teenager that has the confidence, the self-clarity and the strength to understand what he's facing and to go head on into it because he knows that that's the only direction that he can go that will prove his innocence for his morals and his things that he holds dearest in life to be this truth, to be his ability to define who he is hands down and not have anybody, you know, pervert that and to be willing to go through what he was looking at going through. is still amazing to me. And that's the core of the piece. That's really the core themes that I want to come through in the piece. Is it acrylic? Did I just make that up? Do, do I think everything clear is acrylic or is that plastic? I don't know. It's acrylic. Yeah. Plexiglass. How has the reception been? It's been great. I've had so many people telling me that it kind of woke them up to things they didn't know about uh, Khalif and what he did. A lot of people had no idea that he got out of Rikers and was out for two years and during that time was still struggling with all the things that the uh, legal institutions and the incarceration institutions and New York State institutions were still throwing at him for those two years after he was out. There have been a good number of people that when they first saw pictures or first heard about it, they were adamantly against it and they didn't want it to happen. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I first created, I knew that there was going to be a lot of feelings in that direction because, you know, most people don't want to see or experience a prison cell sitting in front of them, you know. And I knew that in certain circles, it would be a triggering piece of art. And so I knew that it was going to be very important to 
be aware of where this was shown, how this was shown, and the context that this piece was displayed in, and the context that it was spoken about, too. It's very serious thematic material, and it's very real and current thematic material. The people that are deeply involved in this story is still walking among us. And even the stuff that it plugs into, like the incarceration system and um, Rikers itself and these kinds of injustices, there are people walking around right next to us that have gone through similar things and dealt with similar stuff. So I knew that there was a certain responsibility of awareness that was going to have to happen with even making the sculpture. And so it's been good that I've met so many people that have come up to me and told me that they were really against it when they first heard about it or first saw it. But once they spent a little time with it, walked around it and thought on it a little more and uh, really took in the entirety of the themes that are in this piece, you know, that through line of Khalif's struggle, which is really what the focus is on. With all these things, a lot of those people uh, changed their minds and saw that there are whole swaths of society out there that need to see this, that need their um, subjective realities kind of interrupted and shown what goes on on the other side of their hedges. Seeing it accomplish in people's minds and in people's perceptions what I wanted it to is, that's what I do it for. That's the real payoff of the whole thing, to see it in action and actually happening. When I saw it, I was like, why have we not duplicated this in every major American city mm. and like intersections? Like people should have to contend with it. Cause I think you're, I agree with you is that like solitary confinement becomes an abstract principle. They're like, wow, that must be bad. And then when you yeah. see it, you're like, you wouldn't last 25 minutes in this little box, right. at a, let alone 700 days. Mm-hmm. Will it travel or can you, I don't, I, so I know nothing about plexiglass, mm. Uh, Can we make 50 of them? Or like, how does this, what happens after the exhibit's over? Well, with a proper budget, we can make 50 of them. (laughs) We're talking right now about what happens to it after the exhibit's done. Looking at having it travel on tour to a few different cities and really kind of spread its effect. If there was a way for me to mass produce these and have them appear like monoliths in certain parts of society around the states... I would definitely do it. I mean, putting it in the right place, you know, interrupting the right people's daily routine and having people viscerally connect with this sculpture or these sculptures, if there are multiples of them. um, Yeah, that's, that's, that's the point of the whole piece, you know, and for it to do that on a wide scale would be great. And for Khalif's name and Khalif's story and Khalif's experience, and the lessons learned from them to stay in people's minds, mouths, and to stay in the public consciousness, I think is really important because, you know, human beings, we're really good at forgetting things. You know, we'll forget it in a, in a heartbeat. But um, stories like this that are pivotal to the core elements of human existence, you know, I think they need to stay in the public consciousness. They need to stay in the public cycle. Or else, you know, all of the benefits that could come from it for society can be washed away with time and the weakness of memory, you know? What's next for you? Or how long does it take to get to a piece like this? Like, do you, I don't know, like, I don't even know what the timeline looks like to, like, produce this. Mm. And then do you, are you already working on the next thing? Or is it a secret? Or is it like... Is there a next thing or Uh is that not the right question to ask artists? 
Well, that's a good, right question to ask some artists. But for me, um, I'm pretty much constantly working on multiple things at once. So it's not even like a next thing. It's what's in the mix, I guess. Just to give you like an idea of timeline. It was about three years ago when uh, this piece first started. I was working in conjunction with another arts and activism group. And for a lot of different reasons, that part of the project just didn't really work out. And so the piece was in storage for a number of years. And then linking up with Pioneer Works, you know, I've known a lot of people that have come through Pioneer Works. And a lot of my circle is directly connected with Pioneer Circle. And um, I had met people from Pioneer Works a few times and we got to talking and it seemed like a great place to showcase the piece and give it some legs because the venue would be great for getting people in front of the piece and having them experience it. And the main clientele that comes through Pioneer is truthfully one of the main groups of viewers that I've always felt needs to see something like this. And it's, it's really panned out. You know, it's, it's come to fruition that it's been a great combination, not just Pioneer and the piece, but the piece in that location with the viewers that have come through and the response and the um, impact that it's had over there. As far as um, what's coming out of the studio, there's a lot of through lines to all the stuff that I make. And one of them is my motto of make cool shit. But the other one is that I'm always looking at subjective realities that we all have of this one reality that we're living in right now. And it has always stunned me that people can live on two sides of not just the country, but two sides of a city, two sides of a neighborhood, and think that reality is completely different from one another. And so a lot of my work centers around looking at these things that we take for granted, looking at these things that we don't even realize are the way they are, and kind of pulling back the curtains, pulling back the veneer that shades, you know, the truth behind these things, or one of the truths, one of the strong truths behind these things that so many of us uh, ignore, and really showcasing that and taking that truth and those truths or those perspectives and blowing them to the fantastical. Because when you make something more and more fantastic or more and more out of the ordinary, it has a tendency to put a magnifying glass on the core principles that you're looking at and the core dynamics that you're looking at. And it brings truths to the light that much easier the further that you take it out of what we all see in everyday kind of quotidian everyday life. I'm always making stuff like that. Like one of the things I'm working on right now is it's a long series that involves painting, sculpture, film, video, digital work. It's called In the Service of a Villain. It's essentially my race and violence series. It takes a look at intra-racial, you know, colorism, things like that, and looks at all these dynamics that we take for granted. The last show that I did downtown in Soho was fully onto that. It was Jimmy Crow and the Imaginary Thuggernaut. It's this thing that I do with all my stuff. You know, I just, I, I take the realities that we live in now and then push them to the fantastical, kind of displaying them in the way that I see them every day. Because ever since I was a kid, I see all parts of daily life in a series of pans, zooms, dollies, jump cuts. There's always a soundtrack going. As I've learned that most people out there aren't the same as me, <laughs> I've slowly learned that like it would be pretty crazy for a lot of people to spend a day in my head because evidently there's a lot going on in comparison to a lot of folks out there. But like constantly, nonstop. 
But um, yeah, so it's the same in my studio. There's kind of constantly nonstop these uh, things that are being made right now with the end of service of a villain series that I'm working on. I'm doing these machetes and I make street sign machetes and machete mandalas out of multiple street signs. And it comes from the narrative that I'm working on where just like in Haiti, parts of the Caribbean, Jamaica, where enslaved black people were given tools to work the land like machetes and you know other farming tools they would take those tools and use them as weapons of revolution you know they would weaponize those tools and actually make them revolutionary weapons and it's transposing that kind of thought and that kind of idea to the contemporary time where you know the elements of uh, slavery and the elements of colonial oppression are still very much here you know not even just the reverberations of them, you know, but like them themselves are still here and happening. And it's transposing that whole idea to the current time with the idea of people taking street signs that were given to urban communities as a form of placation and turning those into weapons against the institutions themselves. Kind of like the way that um, cities for decades have been crying out, you know, take care of us the same way you take care of the cul-de-sac country, the suburbs, the, um, the other parts of the city that are affluent. You know, you give tons of city money and city effort to keeping those places up. You know, it's just civic duties that need to happen. And then they're denied for our neighborhoods. That's why the streets are like hell. That's why the trash pickup is like hell. That's why, you know, it goes all into redlining and all of this thing. And then the city's response is, okay, sure. How about we just name a street after MLK? You know, and then they just don't upkeep it. And so it's, it's no surprise that for such a long time, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in every city was one of the worst kept boulevards in the city. It wasn't because the people there just denied the place. It's because it fell apart because, you know, the civic uh, institutions just uh, threw that name out there. And then just forgot about all these neighborhoods. And so it's about that kind of thing and taking those, those symbols of placation and then uh, shaving them down, turning them into machetes and weaponizing them against those same powers that laid that kind of situation on us in the first place. So I'm making a lot of those and a lot of things that branch out from there. And I've never seen myself as a quote unquote activist artist. If anything, I've seen myself as somewhat of a fantastical realist. So, you know, there's a lot of crossover with uh, different circles uh, doing what I do. And, um, yeah, I'm happy for that. Where can people go to stay in touch with what you're doing? Uh, the best place is most likely my Instagram, my IG. All the artists are on IG and the rest of the world is on Twitter. So um, I'm boosting up my Twitter as well. So, yeah, just to branch out as much as I can. But, yeah, Kobe Kennedy on IG. We consider you a friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back. And uh, everybody needs to go to Pioneer Works and see this piece of art. And hopefully this will be all over the country and people can see it in their hometown if they can't get to New York City. That would be great. Yeah. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. Listen. 
Reynolds Wrap. Reynolds Wrap. Potato wedges? Wedges. Olive oil? Salt. Mwah. Well done, hon. Well done, chef. Right. With Reynolds Wrap, cooking becomes so easy, you can feel like the chef of your kitchen. Easy prep, easy cook, easy clean. Reynolds Wrap. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply.